This is Pet Life Radio. Let's talk pets. Welcome to Animal Rights on Pet Life Radio. This is your host, Tim Link, and I'm so glad you're joining us today. Super duper excited. Uh, I've got so many questions already on the top of my mind for our next guest. She's the uh, author of the latest book called Horse Crazy, the story of a woman, a world in love with an animal. So a story of a woman, a world in love with an animal. So it's about horses. One of our favorites, obviously, love, love, love horses. And we've got uh, Sarah Maslinier coming on to talk to us about the book. I want to talk to her a little bit about uh, her background, which is totally fascinating, and her writing skills because she is a pro. So I'm really going to pick her brain a little bit on that as well. So everybody hang tight. We'll come back right after this commercial break. You're listening to Animal Rights on Pet Life Radio. Moose is the German Shepherd and hasn't had any kind of health problems at all. He has been on Dynavite since he's a puppy. D-I-N-O-V-I-T-E dot com. We tell anybody that has a dog, if there was something that you could do right from the beginning so that you don't have expensive veterinary bills, why would you not do it? Get the Dynavite. Dynavite for life. Get some Dynavite. How happy your dog will be. D-I-N-O-V-I-T-E dot com. Let's Talk Pets on PetLifeRadio.com. Welcome back to Animal Rights on Pet Life Radio. Joining us now is author and writer Sarah Maslin-Near. Sarah, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. Oh, it's my pleasure. And I love the cover. I love everything about the book. It's so fascinating. The book's called Horse Crazy, the story of a woman and a world in love with an animal. And that's very, very true. We love horses. My wife is a horse fanatic, and uh, she loves talking about horses, seeing the horses. And as a matter of fact, I've got a uh, chocolate schnauzer who knows each of the horse farms around our area, and he'll lay in the back seat of the car while we're driving around and instinctually know where the horses are or what he calls the biggest dogs in the world. And <laughs> And he'll pop his little paws up on the uh, side of the, the window uh, ledging. I'll, I'll roll the back window down slightly, and he sits there and looks at those things. And this is a terrier. He loves to bark. This is the only time he doesn't bark. So mm-hmm. got to love those horses. Yeah, I need this terrier. It sounds like uh, he should head over to New York City and hang out with me a little bit. Yes, he is. He's the, he's the cowboy. I call him the renegade cowboy. So he, he definitely <laughs> knows those horses. So tell us a little bit about the book, Horse Crazy. Yeah, what's really interesting about the book is that it's about horses, ostensibly, right? But it's really about passion. I call it a reported look at obsession because I'm a reporter for the New York Times, an investigative reporter, and I've always had this secret fixation with horses. And I call it secret because I never revealed it in my professional life. I didn't want to be seen as maybe out of touch or concerned with ponies when what I cover as a New York Times reporter is such challenging and often dark corners of the world. And so I never really told people that so much of my heart and soul was consumed by horses. But what happened was I also never turned my own investigative lens on myself. Why am I so fixated on horses? And that question, because the sum total of a journalist's job description is the word why. And that question, once I posed it on myself, became this journey and became this book. 
Yeah, and it's a fascinating take on it too, you know, because I love how you're saying that because your background, I mean, you know, I'll go into it from the writing standpoint, but like you said, you're a staff reporter for the New York Times. You've done a Pulitzer Prize nominee. You've done investigative reporting on everything from uh, nail salons all the way to, I love the one where you were forced to go to all the nightclubs and party with everybody to do an insightful <laughs> interview. <laughs> tough, tough <laughs> kick there. But you've traveled the world. You've been everywhere doing investigative reporting. And then all of a sudden you come out with this book, and it is a, a reflective view of not only yourself, but just why people are horse crazy and, and the different cultures and, and the backgrounds behind it. Yeah, when I first started thinking about writing this book, actually, Simon & Schuster, my publisher, contacted me after I wrote, um, as you rightly said, that investigation into exploitative labor practices in New York City nail salons, uh, which was a finalist for the Pulitzer Prize. And they said, we'd like you to write a book about this. And I said, well, I only read, want to write a book about one thing. And they were like, what? And I was like, horses. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, that kind of stunned them. But it's an unusual choice for me, but I was a little self-conscious to write it. And a friend of mine said to me, you know, Sarah, the only thing that matters in a book is passion mm -hmm. because passion translates whatever the subject is, and that will come across to your readers. And that really galvanized me to tell this story because as well as trying to understand my own fixation and obsession with horses, I turned my reporter's notebook on horse crazies around the world. There are 7 million horses in America right now. That's far more than there ever were when they were our only way to get around from place to place. So obviously, they're somehow completely unnecessary, but more than necessary in other ways. And I wanted to examine that. So actually, my journalist stuff ended up coming into perfect play uh, with my pony-loving heart. And that's the take on the book that really – the whole thing intrigues me, but th that's the part that really intrigues me is the fact that you know, I would expect – I can imagine Simon Schuster saying, okay, here's you know, <laughs> this, this journalist that's traveled the world, done these really serious pieces, in-depth things, and she wants to write about horses. I don't know. Okay, that sounds interesting, but what about horses? And you take it in a lot of different angles. You really look at this as not only your obsession and what your thoughts and uh, thoughts of uh, your dad and, and things of this sort, but you really take a real introspect into why it is you're interested in them, but also all these different other avenues of why people in uh, different cultures, parts of life, these type of things that have a fascination and uh, a love for for horses. So the structure of the book, I basically used my own life story with horses as the backbone or maybe the spine of the book, and each story is a page that comes from it. So for example, I grew up in New York City. I'm the daughter of a Holocaust survivor. And I felt very out of place in this elite equestrian world. I felt as a Jew from New York City, I didn't have a right to this rarefied world of the elite and the other. But, you know, as the great horse whisperer, Monty Roberts, said to me, horses don't see that. They demand only one thing of us. They don't demand that you're in cashmere and jodhpurs. They demand that you're a safe place to be. That's what Monty says. And that speaks to me as horses being deeply democratic, that horses really are for everyone. So using examples and, and moments from my life, I tried to explore that thread. So I'll give you an example. I worked for a time in my 20s for a cowboy in Harlem, believe it or not. Dr. Blair and Mrs. Blair were the proprietors of the New York City Riding Academy and actually the founders of the New York City Black Rodeo. 
they were black and they were committed to resurrecting the erased legacy of the black cowboy. Until I was 20 and met them, I didn't know that actually black people were one in four cowboys in the American West, in the pioneer era, were black. And that story has been erased from history. And so using that window into that world from my life story, meeting the Blairs, I ended up riding the range in Texas with a postman who has spent his life savings to create a museum to the black cowboy to resurrect that erased legacy, uh, really removed from our history books by racism. And that is kind of an example of the way my own story, which, you know, journalists never use the word I, right? We're forbidden. (laughs) Um, That became the sort of warp and weft of this tapestry that I tried to weave with the book. When you went on this journey, you went to Texas to delve into it a little bit more from a personal and obviously a professional standpoint. What was their take when they saw you for the first time? You contacted them to ask if you could come down and and ride and learn and these type of things. Was there any hesitation or were they fully open to what you were trying to accomplish or did they just want to get the message out? It's really interesting. As a journalist, I'm a professional busybody. Now, I call people up out of the blue and I ask them, you know, can I insert myself into your life? And plenty of people hang the phone right up, but there's a, a certainly a significant amount of people that just want to be seen. And especially with the Black Cowboys having been removed from the American story, as the great recently passed scholar William Lauren Katz of the Black Cowboy said, if Black people came into the American story, they came in whip, under whips and in chains, and that's not the America we wanted to remember. And that's why those cowboys and horsemen have been erased. And so people want to be saved, invited me into their world because they want to show that they've always been there. The rodeo sport of bulldogging, which is at every rodeo around the world, was created by a black man called Bill Pickett. And he was only inducted in the Rodeo Hall of Fame in 1989, 75 years after he died. Yeah. People want to be part of the story because they always were. Absolutely. And, you know, uh, you mentioned Bill Pickett, who is uh, famous in the world of rodeo and horses and, you know, this area. So people that know that. But I still even believe today, even though he's been uh, inducted, do they really know he's an African-American cowboy? Well, I'll tell you something fascinating. The first winner of the first ever Kentucky Derby was a black jockey, and the trainer was a black man who had been emancipated from slavery. And actually, in the early days of American horse racing, people ran the horses they owned with the humans they owned on top of them. And that is not a conversation we've ever had as a country about the debt we owe. And look, the book is in all dark corners of horse history. It certainly is uplift as well. And the point I tell by these stories is that horses belong to everyone. They belong to the briar collectors that I profile, which are people who love plastic horses, uh, oftentimes because they can't afford real horses, and travel around the country with suitcases full of figurines and compete them in horse shows, which was a quirky world I dug into. But, you know, they're horse people too. They're just as horse crazy as me with my real horses. Absolutely. So when you first started uh, this project, how much did you think that you knew about horses and the, the people that love them compared to once it was completed, what you actually learned? Well, I will give you a perfect example of my mind being blown by horse craziness, which is <laughs> I was reporting in Rajasthan in India, and I got to ride an incredible horse called a Marwari. Marwari is big and brawny like a thoroughbred and fleet like an Arabian and sure-footed, and they have curlicue ears on the top of their head. 
And let me tell you, everything is made better by curls, right? Curly fries, pigtails, <laughs> curls just improve life. That's right. And so That's imagine right. a beautiful horse with curlicue ears on the top of its head. I obviously became obsessed. I had to have one. And when I came back to America, worked body and soul to find one, turns out you can't. The Indian government considers these indigenous horses a rare commodity, and they won't allow the export of them. And actually, since about, I think it's 2006, none have been able to leave the country. And yet, I found a woman on Martha's Vineyard who has a dozen of them. So I called her up and I went to visit her, and I couldn't figure out, for the life of me, how does she have this growing herd of Marwari horses when nobody can get them out? Well, Tim, they have been smuggled as semen in her pockets. Oh. On Air India flights for the past 20 years, she has been smuggling rare stallion semen out of India because she's just that horse crazy. <laughs> but want another twist? You ready for another twist? Oh, I don't know. Down? I don't know if I'm ready for another one after that. <laughs> so she's oh, yeah. an English woman. And I said to her, look, you got to tell me, like I said, the sum total of my job description as a journalist is why. You've told me the what They've gone back for 20 years endlessly to India. You told me about the smuggling the semen and your illicit herd and Martha's Vineyard. But why? Why you, this British woman? Why did you become the steward of the Marwari horse? Turns out she's been traveling back to India many times a year for 20 years because she's been having a love affair with the first safari guide who took her on her travels across India. And theirs is a romance that has spanned several marriages, several continents, several decades. And the horses are just swept up in it. Oh my gosh! All right, Sarah. So, so we so we know your next book. It's it's going to be a total different type of. It's going to be less memoir and background of horses and more fiction and uh, a love affair, Harlequin type of uh, romance centered around an Indian lover and, and Indian horse semen. <laughs> what I love about being a journalist, right, is that. Sometimes life is better than fiction. You know, the man she's in love with is the founder in India of Elephant Polo. I mean, you couldn't make this stuff up if you tried. <laughs> <laughs> I see it now. I see it now. I hope you told your editors this story because I, I definitely see a second book coming out. And you, you may have a whole new future. You may have to change your name to a different pen name <laughs> or something for this one. Well, you know, it's a chapter in the book, but uh, I think there's a lot more to say about Francesca Kelly and her season smuggling. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, that, that, yeah, the more detail I learned just now, that's a... I don't want to know anymore, but yet I do want to know. It's like a bad <laughs> wreck on the side of the road or something, you know. <laughs> oh, goodness gracious. All right. Well, listen, we're going to take a quick break. Uh, we'll come back right after these commercials. Uh, talk a little bit more to Sarah Maslinier about her book, Horse Crazy. And then I want to dive a little bit more into writing in general and uh, the skill set of the uh, the writer, the journalist, the reporter. So everybody hang tight. We'll come back right after this commercial break. You're listening to Animal Rights on Pet Life Radio. Sit. Stay. We'll be right back after a short pause. Well, four to be exact. For those fortunate to have experienced the deep bond and unconditional love of a companion animal, the death that follows can be one of the most difficult and misunderstood losses to go through. Many times, this devastating loss goes unrecognized and trivialized by family and friends leaving grieving pet parents struggling to find healthy ways to cope with the loss. In And I Love You Still, a thoughtful guide and remembrance journal for healing the loss of a pet, Dr. Julianne Corbin calls attention to the difficulties unique to the loss of a beloved pet and provides an interactive and compassionate guide to help you process your loss 
and work towards coming to a place of peace and healing. For those interested in journal therapy and looking for a professionally written and compassionate resource to help understand and reconcile the grief associated with the loss of your pet, this book is for you. And I Love You Still, a thoughtful guide and remembrance journal by Julianne Corbin is now available for purchase on Amazon and other major book retailers. Let's talk pets. Let's talk pets on Pet Life Radio. Pet Life Radio. PetLifeRadio.com. Welcome back to Animal Rights on Pet Life Radio. Continue our conversation with uh, author, writer, uh, journalist Sarah Maslin near uh, her latest book, uh, Horse Crazy, the story of a woman and a world in love with an animal. Uh, so, Sarah, after putting together the book, Horse Crazy, what is it that most intrigued you and fascinated you about putting everything together? And then what are you hoping the readers will get from it? Yeah, so originally when I pitched the book, I said, this is an almanac or a compendium of horse crazies around the world. And actually, I ended my pitch with, this isn't my story. This is the story of the horses. And my editor pushed back and said, look, we think it's your story too. And for a journalist, you know, that is inimical to what we do. I I said earlier, we just don't use the word I. It's beaten out of us. So the idea that I would include my memoiristic narrative in this was like itchy. I didn't want to do it. I was like, oh, gross. (laughs) But yeah, it made made me twitch. But then I thought, you know, when you look at a puppy or or a cat, you know, you think, oh, right. But when you look at a horse, you feel something. It's kind of like uh, the same emotion of looking at a a mountain vista or, or the waves rolling in on the sea. And that made me realize that horses are deeply personal, that they have a deeply emotional connection to people. And that it wouldn't be a true story of horses if I wasn't included. So the writing process ended up being deeply personal and unexpected. And I've never written that way before. I talk about my family. I'm the daughter of a Holocaust survivor. I had a lot of um, sense of not belonging as a Jew in this Tony world of horseback riding. And I also tried to understand why did I engage so deeply with these animals? Why were they my everything? And, you know, I have a very fractured family and I talk about the loss of my brothers who are from another marriage and really don't participate in my life. And horses were creatures that always would be with me in a way that my family wasn't. And the other thing I address in the book, which took a really personal turn, which is very challenging to write, was on Thanksgiving Day of 2010, I was stabbed by an intruder who climbed through my window in my apartment in New York City. And it really um, ruptured my life. And horses helped me heal. I developed something called hypervigilance, which is Mm -hmm. where you hear every sound. Uh, It's a post-traumatic stress reaction because you're always listening for the next guy who's going to come and attack you. And horses live like that every day because they're prey creatures. And actually speaking to the great horse whisperer, Monty Roberts, helped me understand that, that that's what a prey creature feels like. And I had become one. And ultimately, what helped me recover was realizing that unlike these horses that I loved so much, I had a choice as to whether or not I was prey. And it wouldn't be something made for me by a stranger in the dark. And so writing that stuff was reliving it. It was harrowing. But I think a story 
has to be true and has to be real and, and it needed to be included. Right. You know, and I found, you know, animals in general are great uh, teachers and they're great healers. Uh, we look at the mm. horse in particular as being a fantastic healer. It sounds like that you, correct me if I'm wrong, you knew that horses were healers, but through writing it and actually forcing yourself to put this out there, did it help you go through a healing process? Yes. And uh, in some ways it reopened a lot of wounds. I actually started riding really badly after the book came out. <laughs> I have uh, four horses, hunter jumpers outside of New York City. And um, so I started riding like crap after the book came out. And I realized because I was reliving that story, all those stories, that all of this emotional connection to these animals that I don't really think of on the surface of my mind, that it's this connection that's in my soul and I, I don't question it, that every time I did a book reading, every time I did an interview, I was unpacking what horses meant to me. And it kind of destabilized me. I think I realized how I clung to them to survive this very lonely childhood, how much I needed them to survive being attacked. And uh, resurrecting that through my writing was very challenging. That's really fascinating you say that. But you know, when I listen to you and listen to your story and, and read the book, I sort of envision, rightfully or, or not, that this is a another side of you, a side that's been kept in and though the folks at New York Times may not like this, they want you to be the champion investigative reporter that you are. But on the other hand, you know, I see this other side of you being able to come out and not only heal, but to write from a different side, you know, a different type of writing, a different, touching a different message and in people in a different way. Yeah, that's a great way to look at it. And um, I think I got to that point, but I think the idea that you write something in a book and close the cover and it it's wrapped up with a bow isn't really true. I think memoir can become very stirring, right? It, it mm -hmm. stirs the pot. And I've had a lot of people beautifully write me and say, you know, I, I never expected to cry so much in reading your book because it's not really a sad book, but it's very heartfelt. And there's a lot of loaded meaning in horses for people. And uh, I didn't realize perhaps that there was so much meaning in them for me. Because as I said in the beginning of the book, my love for horses is so part of my body and soul mm -hmm. that I don't question it any more than I would the rise and fall of my own chest. And so in questioning it, I peeled back the veil and, and it was challenging to understand that they had healed me so much, but that there was so much to heal from. Yeah, absolutely. Big kudos to you because I think, I think that's one of the brilliance of this book. There's a, a lot of great uh, books about horses, about people's relationships with horses, the connection with horses in general, and, and the communication aspects of it like Marty does. But you tying all that in, that fantastic history and interest and, and background you know, the reporter side of you coming out and then you exposing yourself a little bit too, you know, from the memoir side of it and the, your background and your father. I think it was a, a perfect blend of the two. And it's something that, you know, I, I get the privilege to read and, and receive a lot of different books about animals in particular, but um, it's rare that I see the combination of the two. Oh, thank you so much. I actually, you know, find horse books a little isolating because you can't really ever get in that relationship with one person and one horse. Like you can't feel what either of those creatures feel. And a lot of horse books are about that dynamic between a person and a beloved horse. And I always feel like I'm sitting on the outside of them. So I tried to make my book really say, we're all here. Get on board with me, jump astride and sit on the back of my saddle and let's gallop along together. And in that, I went to the Museum of the Natural History and, you know, held the 50 million year old skull of 
the antecedent to the equid. And I brought the reader in the belly of a 747 where I flew with nine Dutch warmbloods that we were importing from Holland to America. And I really wanted them to just, you know, get in the tack with me because horses are for everyone. Anyone who's ever looked into their big brown eyes, even if they've never sat on them, you know, I consider a horse person as long as those eyes tug on your soul. <laughs> Absolutely. I agree with you a hundred percent. And so does my little schnauzer. So uh, <laughs> it'll be great. Well, I can't let you go without talking about a little bit about the writing aspect. You know, we talked about how you're a uh, finalist for the Pulitzer Prize doing all this great investigative work for the New York Times and traveling the world. You've got a, a master's degree from Columbia in journalism and you know, graduated from Columbia University. So you've had some serious stuff and some serious articles and some really fascinating things going on. How do you handle that type of writing, the investigative reporting side of things, compared to trying to put together this uh, this book? Was one well, easier than the other or was uh, totally different? What I always say about journalism is journalism is a muscle. Like, yes, I'm fortunate enough to have gotten these credentials and, and these degrees, and, and, and I didn't learn squat at them. <laughs> I learned everything by doing. Journalism is an activity and you only get better at writing and reporting by writing and reporting. Actually, someone just said to me the other day, journalism is about noticing what you're noticing. And that's how you get stories. I thought that was so smart. Memoir is image driven. It's emotion driven. And so there was almost a relief that I could finally, you know, use all the flowery words that we can't in our spare muscular journalistic writing, that I could be impressionistic. I could talk about how the gorse felt brushing against my face as I galloped to the sea when I was a cowboy at an Oceanside ranch. You know, I I could talk about the way the feeling of a horse's heartbeat when you hold your head against their neck feels. And, you know, that has no place in journalism, but it has every place in effective uh, literary nonfiction. So it was freeing. It was a relief. Sometimes when I write for the Times, I'll use a fancy word like umber, and my editor will say, can't you just write the word brown? <laughs> and, uh, in, in journalism, you have to write the word brown, but when you're describing a beautiful day, you can use umber. There you go. <laughs> Get that thesaurus out. You're ready to go. Yeah. <laughs> oh, fantastic. Fantastic. The book itself, what was that process as far as time to thought, you know, pitching it to your editor to actually having it in my hot little hands right here? <laughs> it took a year to write. I uh, probably could have done it faster because those stories were all just in me, but I do have a full-time job at the New York Times. Mm -hmm. And what was really fun was the process of the cover um, which you remarked on. Thank you. It's actually a horse striding into the sea with a little girl on his back. And that's actually the exact Marwari stallion that I rode into the sea myself in Martha's Vineyard. And it just so happens an artist had done a photo series of little girls riding these rare stallions into the water. And so this picture, you don't see the girl's face. She's striding away into the ocean, kind of embodies how horses allowed me to, you know, gallop into, into freedom, that feeling of, uh, of being with her on her back. And also I like that her face is obscured because it could be you and it should be you by the time you finish this book, you should be along for that journey. And then I'll tell you there's a little secret inside the book. Uh -huh. If you open the dust jacket, yes. there is a little golden horse imprinted on the cover. 
And that is actually from the estate of Wesley Dennis, who was the collaborator with the famous horse writer, Marguerite Henry, who wrote Misty of Chincoteague. And in the book, I go swimming with the wild ponies that Marguerite Henry wrote about uh, in Assateague and Chincoteague. And I chronicle this story that she made famous in Misty. And so I wanted a little tribute to the original horse book writer, Marguerite Henry and Wesley Dennis. So I bought that little golden image as a treat for the reader who's lucky enough to find it under the cover. Fantastic. That is so, ah, I'm looking at you. It's like a treasure hunt now, you know, looking for this. <laughs> I love exactly. that. I, I love that. Well, you, you, the description of the cover and everybody obviously pick up a copy of the book, Horse Crazy. It's a fantastic read and, and a great book. You know, when you were describing the cover itself, you made the remark and, I, and uh, I'll, I'll pitch it back your way. You made the remark, you know, it's this beautiful horse walking into the sea and it's got this lovely little girl and she's got her arms out and she's being free. And you said you uh, like purposefully like the fact that the little girl's face couldn't be seen because the reader then could put themselves into the who this little girl is as if it was them. Mm-hmm. I actually thought indirectly, I didn't know if that was you or not as a child, but I thought indirectly that is you. I felt that by reading the book, I felt that this is Sarah riding this horse and feeling free about what she just mm-hmm. accomplished, free, free from uh, perhaps a little bit different style of writing and uh, getting this message out in a memoir fashion. So mm, interesting. Yeah, I, I love that it can be either. I did ride that horse, but not when I was a five year old girl like that girl in the book. Right, right, right. Yeah. I thought, I thought maybe they trained five year old woman. Right. I thought maybe they transposed you on that, but I got the personal imagery of it. I didn't know who the little girl was exactly, but I got yeah. the imagery that this, this is how it made, after putting together the book, this is how it made you feel. So, uh, yeah, an original cover that we had thought about was just the face of a horse with a, a, a little hand touching it, touching its nose. And I loved that as well, because it could be your hand, it could be my hand, it could be anyone's hand. And I guess my whole thesis with the book is that horses are for everyone, and they are a creature that allows us to be limitless. When we sit on their backs, on my own two legs, I'm just Sarah. On four, lent four, I'm formidable. And that power that they give us is a gift for everyone. And that was kind of my message. If I were to give you a thesis of horse crazy... It's that horses are a gift for us all. I love the thesis. It sounds like it comes straight from the heart. So I, I love it, Sarah, and that's a beautiful analogy, and I need not add any more to this. So everybody <laughs> pick up a copy of the, of the book. It's called uh, Horse Crazy, the Story of a Woman and a World in Love with an Animal, Sarah Maslin-Near. Sarah, it was a pleasure. Congratulations on the book. A fan, fantastic job. And if you put together the book about the uh, crazy Spanish lady with the horse semen, I'll read that and get that one as well. <laughs> I'll do it just for you. Please do. Please do. Thank you for having me. And this is such a wonderful show. It's the fascinating corner of our, of our writing and riding and all animals in between world. And I love it. Fantastic. Well, thank you for your time. It was a pleasure. And we'll look forward to speaking with you again real soon. Okay. Be well. All right. Well, we're coming to the end of the show today. I want to thank everyone for listening to Animal Rights on Pet Life Radio. Got any questions, comments, ideas, or people you want to see uh, here, I should say, on the show, you can uh, drop us a line. Go to PetLifeRadio.com. Drop us a line. We'll be glad to entertain your comments, answer your questions, and bring on the people you want to hear from most. And while you're there, check out all the other wonderful hosts and shows. It's a cornucopia of great entertainment. That's at PetLifeRadio.com. So until next time, write a great story about the animals in your life, put it in a book, a blog, a magazine, get it out there. And however you do, you may find yourself as the next guest on Animal Rights on Pet Life Radio. Have a great day. 
Let's Talk Pets, every week on demand, only on PetLifeRadio.com.